Hello and welcome to Punch a Hole in the Wind, a look at some of the great thoroughbred racehorses who have graced our racetracks all over the world over the last century or so. I'm Ollie Hine, and it's great of you to join me on this exciting trip down memory lane. My aim is to both remind you of some of your heroes from years gone by, but also to introduce you to some others whom you may not be so familiar with. This time, we're going to the early 1980s, and a horse who blitzed the racecourses of England like few before him, but who later became world famous for tragic reasons. The layperson will likely not know many of the names in this podcast, but depending on their age, you can be fairly sure that they will have heard of Shergar. It won't be for racing reasons, of course, but that shouldn't cloud the simple fact that, for the summer months of 1981, he showed that he was one of the most sublime racehorses to have ever graced the tracks of England. Owned and bred by the Aga Khan, the son of great-nephew was sent to Michael Stout's impressive yard at Newmarket, soon becoming popular because of his fine temperament, an instantly recognisable white blaze and matching four white socks. Ridden at two by Lester Piggott, he won his first race, the Chris Plate, at Newbury over a mile by two and a half lengths, displaying ample ability. Sent straight to Group 1 company thereafter, he was far from disgraced, coming second to Belldale Flutter in the Futurity Stakes at Doncaster, Piggott not having the smoothest of passages over the mile. But the colt clearly had bags of potential. Shergar properly blossomed over the winter, packing on muscle and displaying the clear stamp of a derby horse. Two trials were chosen, and now, with Stout's new retained jockey on board, the 19-year-old Walter Swinburne. First, he headed to the Guardian Classic trial over ten furlongs at Sandown, where he turned many heads in cruising to victory by ten lengths. Next, to try to practice for Epsom as much as possible, he was sent to Chester for the Chester Vars, over twelve furlongs of tight left-hand turns. It suited Shergar's instantly recognisable choppy stride well, and Swinburne let him loose, with victory this time by 12 lengths. He became a very hot Derby favourite. At Epsom, on the 3rd of June 1981, for once, everything fell into place exactly as it was meant to. Rounding Tattenham Corner, four furlongs from the finish, Swinburne gave his mount a little rein and he inexorably clipped his way further and further ahead, floating in the soft ground as others dragged. The distance over glint of gold at the line was ten lengths, which could easily have been fifteen if Swinburne hadn't basically started pulling him up half a furlong from home. Even so, it remains to this day the greatest winning distance of this Epsom classic. He had at one stage been so far apart that after the event, Glint of Gold's jockey John Mathias stated, I told myself I'd achieved my life's ambition. Only then did I discover there was another horse on the horizon. England had a super horse on its hands. He was equally impressive later in the month, in the Irish derby, Piggott this time substituting for the suspended Swinburne. He sauntered to victory with four lengths again a misleading guide to his colossal superiority over cut above. Even commentator Peter O'Sullivan, 
never one to resort to cheap superlative or overstatement during his lengthy career, exclaimed dumbfounded, he's only in an exercise canter. The US had taken notice too, with a group of American owners making a huge offer to the Aga Khan. He chose instead to split his champion into 40 shares, each worth a quarter of a million pounds, and keeping six for himself. It made no difference to Shergar, who next tried his luck against the older horses in the King George and Queen Elizabeth stakes at Ascot in July, starting at 5-2 to two on. Despite finding himself boxed in on the rail for longer than he would have liked, Swinburne found a gap in the home straight and put the race to rest quickly, Shergar coasting home four lengths clear of Madame Gay. Stout, a multiple British champion trainer, said simply, he's the best I've ever had, something that he would repeat years later. With the arc as his predictable autumn target, there was surprise that the 14 furlong St. Ledger was chosen as his prep race. Rumours also swirled in the lead-up, swiftly denied, that he had become a bit rascally in training. In the event, Shergar did something for the one and only time. He ran an ordinary race. He simply couldn't accelerate in the soft ground, finishing fourth behind Cut Above and nine lengths behind Glint of Gold, each of whom he had destroyed in the two derbies. Once again, lessons about the growing risks of using the St. Ledger as a trial for the Ark had not been heeded. No one could find anything wrong with him other than tiredness, with the Aga Khan rapidly deciding that he had very little left to prove, thus retiring his hero to stud at the Ballymanny stud in County Kildare, in his birthplace of Ireland, a recognised middle-distance champion who annihilated worthy opposition in those first five races. And there, the story should conclude with his success, or otherwise, as a sire. But of course, tragically, it doesn't. On the night of the 8th of February, 1983, just 18 months after his last race, three masked gunmen, very likely IRA criminals needing to raise funds to buy arms, raided the stud, holding the head groom at gunpoint as he loaded one of the most famous stallions in the world into a horse box. What happened over the next few days has been captured in immense detail by many articles and documentaries. But two things always shine through. The gunman knew absolutely nothing either about how racehorse syndication worked they thought the Aga Khan was still the owner, when in fact they were now nearly 40. Nor did they know how to look after a half-ton stallion. It was also staggering to some that stud farms like this, holding multi-million dollar thoroughbreds, should have no meaningful security. But, then again, nothing as brazen or thoughtless as this had ever been attempted before. The entire process was front-page news for days in the global press. Comparisons with the celebrated disappearance of British socialite Lord Lucan in the 1970s were spuriously made, a rather lazy analogy when one considers that Shergar was not in charge of his own destiny and was accused of nothing other than being immensely valuable. In fact, $10 million in 1981 money. Indeed, it was his incredible success and the manner of doing so that had first made him headline news around the world as a racehorse and in turn most likely lured the kidnappers, amongst a host of valuable stallions, 
to zoom in specifically on him. Negotiations soon went dead, and it became apparent within days that their ignorant demands simply could not be met. No one was keen to pay a ransom and therefore set a potentially lucrative criminal precedent, but the logistics of doing so were essentially impossible anyway. Although hard to prove, with conflicting IRA reports since emerging, a detailed Sunday Telegraph investigation, 27 years after the event, spelled out what they believed had transpired. It was a truly stomach-churning turn of events. Senior IRA leaders, likely unsighted on the plan, initially wanted the poor horse released, but soon realised that with a huge search underway and the media all over the issue, the kidnappers and possibly others would soon be compromised. By this stage, it is probable that a distressed and manhandled Shergar had in any case injured himself, likely a broken leg. One secret source claimed in that Telegraph article, Shergar was machine-gunned to death. There was blood everywhere, and the horse even slipped on his own blood. There was lots of cussing and swearing, because the horse wouldn't die. It was a very bloody death. What was left of Shergar was then allegedly buried in a bog in County Leitrim. We may never know exactly when or where the shameful deed happened, or indeed whether this absurd and horrific plot ever resulted in internal retribution within closed IRA circles, as certainly no one was ever brought to justice in the courts. Shergar had only covered 44 mares before his disappearance. In a horrible irony, the first of his 42 offspring was born the very week that the stallion was taken. Needless to say, their pedigree, coupled with their rarity, made all of his offspring treasured more than most foals. But this dreadful episode should simply not be the final word on this magnificent thoroughbred. He brought a rare talent to a glorious summer, during which he would likely have beaten any horse in the world. He set records that look like they won't be beaten any time soon. He inspired non-racegoers to start visiting the racetracks, hoping that they would see the next Shergar. As one journalist put it, his series of spread-eagling victories seemed to define supreme excellence in the middle-distance thoroughbred. He was indeed truly special, and those are the memories, above all others, that we should cling to. To find out more about Shergar and other greats from the past, check out my book, Punch a Hole in the Wind, out now and available online and in bookshops. Next time, we'll go to a different part of the world and share the exploits of another great horse from another era who could punch a hole in the wind. But until then, this is Ollie Hine signing off and saying thank you for listening.